Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! Live from the Writing Center at Bethel University, it's Election Shock Therapy. We we're are back. back! Wow, that was like really hot. You yeah, know, I, like, I want to come in hot, man. Wow. This is a this is a new He's era. Energized. It's a new. Semester. It's a new time. It's a new season. Move over, Dean Scream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you know that we lead off with the Dean Scream yes, part of this? Yes, yes. <laughs> Guys, how was your summer breaks? I um, uh, I got to I I, t- I drove a U-Haul to Michigan this Ooh. summer. That was fun. Wow. Um, and then I then I came back. <laughs> I didn't back. stay there. <laughs> um, got rid of all of our baby stuff, so my house feels. Um, you had a U-Haul full of baby stuff. A U-Haul full of baby stuff. Where'd you How take big it? Was this U-Haul? To my brother-in-law, who now has a U-Haul's <laughs> worth of baby stuff. Thanks, wow. Josh. <laughs> Super excited. Oh my word. Um, Sam, how'd you spend your break? Uh, I got to travel to Europe with about uh, 20 people, mostly in their 60s and 70s, and study the First and Second World War. It was nice. really great. Nice. Then I made schedules and taught this summer. So, wow. Anywhere you'd like to travel, say, this next summer? I would. Uh, I don't know if we can announce where you and I are traveling this next summer, can we? I don't know. Let's just say it's domestic. Let's just say there's a road trip involving Mulberry and I, and you might get to go. Yeah, and wow. it's going to be awesome. Wow. Yeah. So keep listening. Election You'll learn. therapy road trip? Uh, <laughs> or maybe a different podcast road a trip. A different oh. podcast road trip. All right, all right. All right. Andy, so how about you? What should say? Um, so I, was, I spent a lot of time here at Bethel. I was on the General, general Education Working Group. We're going to be proposing <laughs> new general education <laughs> next week. Stay tuned. Um, but beyond that, I went to a number of historical sites with my family. Um, we went and visited the Forest History Center where we looked at Minnesota's logging, Charles Lindbergh's um, uh, childhood home, and other pl- fun places. Um, and went up to uh, the, spent a couple of days at the lake. Um, my uncle and aunt have a lake cabin. That was a lot of fun. Nice. So, lots of good family time. Do you fish? Um, I do not. My children tried it with my uncle, and they were, were as successful as their father had been at their age, <laughs> just to say not very. So, okay. um, and I was kind of... I have to admit to being like kind of happy that they didn't catch the bug. Like they didn't seem all that enthused about it, and I was like, "Good," because I don't really want to have to start going out and fishing. I love that you thing. said that because there is something great about in the realm of parenting where you're like, "I hope you're not into this right. because I can't spend the next 15 years doing right. this." I mean, like, <laughs> like I have a nephew who's super into fishing, and I just keep thinking, like, "What if one of my kids gets this?" Because then I have to. I feel like as a parent, like I should probably be supportive. I mean, it's a good thing getting outdoors, sure. doing this, but. I really don't care about yeah. fishing. I just don't. So, <laughs> you dodged a bullet. So, yeah, yeah. It turns out that they are, in fact, my children and my wife's children, and they weren't very enthused either. So it's all good. Okay, so joining me at the table today are Sam Mulberry and Andy Bramson and... Mitchell Crum. Wait, Wait what? <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Actually. Another MK. Yeah, I know. Also, with a, but with a matching shirt, so you fit. It's good. Yeah, we're all wearing blue today. <laughs> I spent my summer moving cross country, and no, I, I did not. Um, I'm not Mitchell Crum. So my name is Matt Kugum, and oh, close, um, I took Mitchell Crum's job, actually. <laughs> so we are glad you did. 
Yeah, well, it's it's sad to see Mitch go. Mitch and, and I go go a ways back. We went to so, grad school. So this together. is really unusual in the academic world. Usually, in the academic world, you're kind of prepared to move anywhere in the world, and you know, you kind of leave your grad school uh, acquaintances and friends behind. And uh, you and you and Mitch knew each other in grad school, and and you succeeded him in this position here at Bethel. Here. Yeah, it's uh, very strange how that worked out, actually. So, um, but he is, he is now um, doing well. I talked to him a couple of days ago. Um, so all of you out there in podcast land can know that Mitch Crum is, is doing well, settling into his new home. We're going to use him. We're going to use him as a foreign correspondent uh, exactly. when the, for the South Carolina <laughs> primaries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. we should. Totally should. It's going to be fun. Um, it's going to be fun. So, we should yeah, still we, be a regular contributor. Right? Yeah, I oh, think yes. we're going to. Uh, yeah, a contributing member of the uh, yes. of the EST squad. But you're joining in, in his regular seat. Um, Talk, talk a little bit about um, some of the things you studied in grad school, some of the things you're interested in studying now, maybe some of the courses you teach. So it's been joked that I'm sort of like a Mitchell Crumb clone, probably okay. not as good as a Mitchell Crumb, like actual clone. But That's clone how clones work, though, so right? Aren't clones always a little worse than the original? downgraded a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Like, they have the same DNA, but it just doesn't quite work out the same mm, way. A few so, more bugs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some kinks, they just haven't worked out, but... Uh, yeah, so Mitch and I studied uh, similar uh, topics in graduate school. So for both of us, our primary um, area of interest was political philosophy, political theory, but we also studied American politics. And so we had a lot of the same professors, similar courses. Um, even our dissertations have a little bit of overlap um, in their content, and I won't bore you all with that at this point. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we were, we were good friends, and, um, and we both have a passion for um, thinking about um, the role of sort of religion in public life. Um, mm-hmm. Both have a passion for teaching. Um, and so I'm excited to be here at Bethel. Cool. Yeah, good to have you. We're excited to have you here. Good so here. Um, with this new uh, f- uh, new and revived EST, we're joining a new and revived lineup of other uh, um other uh, podcasts on the Live from AC Second channel. But I do have to ask Sam, our producer, are we sticking with Live from AC Second as a channel name? We are for the time being. Yeah. Okay. Um, the reason why I bring this up is AC Second doesn't exist anymore. What well, exists? It exists. It exists. It's, it's, just, it's, engineering it's just the labs. Fluid Dynamics Lab for our engineering <laughs> program. Well, I would like to use this moment to announce our Fluid Dynamics podcast, yeah, so, which, nice. is the, which is the flagship of Live from AC Second. <laughs> oh, so. it's called now, The Flow. That's right. <laughs> See, if you can make that happen, this could all kind of tie together. That's right. So. All right we'll get Brian Beacon on here. Yeah. I'm actually just waiting around for a better name, and we'll change it at some point, probably. Okay. But yeah. for right, right now, I'm averse to change. So, But people can you. still email us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com. They can also email this podcast at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And you know what they should do if they're listening to us right now, especially if you're listening to us, like you just clicked the link and it's literally listening to it on Podbean, go to Stitcher or go to the Apple Podcast app and just subscribe because we're this semester we're going to have three or four shows a week, different things, really, really great stuff. So that's probably the best way to, uh, mm-hmm. to find the pod is to subscribe and be a regular listener and expand, expand your, your you know, beyond, uh, beyond politics. So nice. Lots, of, lots going on. That's good advice. So speaking of lots going on, we could, in Election <laughs> Shock Therapy, podcast for about the next seven or eight hours yeah. and get all caught up in all Lock the, the doors. politics that yes. happened this summer. Lock the doors. But no one would glass. listen to seven or eight yes. hours. No one will um, listen. Our wives will not be pleased. No. So no, many bad no. things. Yep. So instead of that, here's the format I'm gonna, we're going to use. We've compiled a list 
a rough list of all the major headlines that happened pertaining to American politics this summer. I don't know if I want to say all, but uh, many of them. Many of them. <laughs> many of them. Um, and each of us has come equipped with a buzzer or uh, a bell. And so um, everybody gets two dings of the bell. If there's an event that you want to talk about and get some thoughts out about, um, go ahead and hit that bell. We'll stop for four or five minutes. Sam's going to keep time. Four, four minutes. minutes. Four. And then we're going to move on to the list. So there's some things we're just not going to talk about. We're going to mention them in context, and then we're going to keep going down the list. Cool? Cool. These are the That's rules, good. and they are very rigid. Oh, yeah. We're, we're real serious here. So everybody ready for me to start? And I will Do remind it. you, you all have a bell. Bells are privileges, not rights. So, you know. <laughs> they can be taken away from <laughs> That's <you>. right. <laughs> Wow. All right. Starting at the beginning of the summer, May 8th, Trump asserts his executive privilege over the Mueller report. May 13th, Viktor Orban, president of Hungary, visits the White House. May 24th through 28th, Donald Trump visits Japan. May June, already into June, guys. All right. right. (laughs) June 2nd through 5th, Trump visits the United Kingdom. June 7th, the United States reaches a deal with Mexico on immigration, thereby averting tariffs threatened by Donald Trump um, over the immigration uh, issue. June 13th, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the uh, um, White House spokesperson, resigns. On June 18th, President Trump withdraws the nomination of Patrick Shanahan to be Secretary of Defense and names Mark Esper as his replacement. I actually that, want to hear that's a That's a buzzer from Bramson. We need to break in here. And I actually, so I have to confess, um, okay. June 18th, I was in the middle of VBS at our church, and I, and I kind of like totally missed <laughs> the church. When I was re- reading your, your reports, I was like, huh, apparently that happens. Yep. <laughs> so IR guy, I kind of want to hear about like your take on the whole um, Secretary of Defense drama over the summer. You put it on the list. I see mm-hmm. some take on this. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 at once both pedestrian and also yep. incredibly important. And mm-hmm. so, my take is this: um, Donald Trump, um, after Jim Mattis left, and now there's an added layer to this because Jim Mattis is now preparing to cash in, publish a book, Books, and. Yeah. Um, the book apparently, um, I've not read it yet, but apparently is not a um, deep kiss and tell of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mattis very specifically says that um, as a departing civil servant, it, it's his responsibility right. to basically be quiet about yep. the current administration. He takes plenty of shots at the Obama administration, so there's mm-hmm. some people who are annoyed that he doesn't deal the same to Donald Trump. Um, but with Mattis's departure, uh, Trump initially went for quite a while um, longer than usual without nominating a replacement right. uh, to the Secretary of Defense. The, the Defense Department is the biggest corporation in the United States, if you want to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. It has an enormous number of employees. It occupies, it holds territory roughly equal to the size of the state of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an enormous entity. Yep. And it was it had an acting, an acting secretary for a period of about five weeks. And, and then he nominated uh, Patrick Shanahan. Five weeks or five months? Well, from Mattis's departure, yeah, actually, probably significantly longer than that. Um, And then um, Trump nominates Shanahan. Shanahan actually ultimately has to withdraw from the nomination because of some personal issues in his um, in his his conduct and the conduct of his family. 
And so when um, it's not until June 18th that uh, that Trump finally yanks Shanahan's nomination and names Mark Esper, who will go on later this summer to be confirmed as SecDef. Right. right. Confirmed right. quite easily. So just, I mean, it's, it's an interesting event because, it's, again, it kind of reinforces a pattern we've commented on this podcast about before, but which is that, you know, there's a lot of turnover in the Trump administration. It feels like there's been a number of these, like, people put forward who then have to kind of be set aside, have to be withdrawn. Um, from consideration, so it's a yep. kind of that ongoing sense of kind of turmoil in the administration. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a comment beyond that. I just thought it was an interesting moment to know. In many ways, the def- Secretary of Defense is for in, um, for in general is one of the most important um, positions, and in particular for mm-hmm. uh, this president, who's leaned yeah. heavily yeah. on his Defense Department and has leaned heavily on his generals. Um, mm-hmm. Those generals are now gone, right? <laughs> uh, Kelly, Mattis. Yep. Um, they, these folks have departed the administration. Mm-hmm. McMaster. McMaster <laughs> as well, yes. That was an early one. Shall we move on, gentlemen? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. On June 26th and 27th, uh, we had the first round of the Democratic presidential debates. <laughs> uh, I say first round. There were uh, two full nights of debate, mm. 20 candidates. Is it there we go. Right. I, I That's just a lot of people to have on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I will confess, I did not subject myself to watching any of the the Democratic presidential debates. I just watched highlights. Yeah, me good. too. Like me Sports too. Center highlights? Um, pretty Here much. comes Elizabeth like Warren the, with the dunk. The, the politics version of <laughs> Right, uh, exactly. Which yeah, is pretty much. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tune like, in more when we get to like a, a narrower field. Here's the Harris takedown of Biden. Right, yeah. Well, for real, actually. <laughs> yeah, that was the, it's um, easy to break up anyway because it's all like really yep. short sound bites as it yep. is. But, so, Matt, I mean, like, for whom do these early debates matter? <laughs> for good whom question. does the bell toll? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that too. That's a good question. And in some ways, they don't matter a whole lot uh, because we're really not in um, full-blown primary season yet. We're, we're really mm-hmm. getting close mm-hmm. to that. Um, now that we're past Labor Day, people right. are starting to get back from their summer vacations mm-hmm. and they're tuning back into politics a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, we're, you know, the people who write about presidential debates and the political scientists that sit around tables and talk about presidential <laughs> debates um, are the sorts of, like, dorks and nerds that, like, like to talk about <laughs> politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we are not representative of the general population, thank heavens. Uh. <laughs> um, and so people really aren't paying attention a whole okay. lot, um, especially mm-hmm. in the middle of the summer when you have these long debates, two nights back to back, and you have, right. you know, uh, you know, 10... 10 people on stage both nights. Um, it's just really hard for any one person to get significant traction um, yeah. during one of those nights in that sort of crowded field when people really aren't tuning in to listen in in the middle of the summer. So the upshot is it really doesn't matter a whole lot. Okay. And actually, if you look at, at polls that have happened after these debates, there's not a whole lot of movement. That was what was striking to me. I mean, like the whole narrative out of that first debate, for example, is, you know, Harris took down Biden. Boy, that was a big moment for her. She was great, right? And her polling did bump up for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then it's basically gone right back down to where yeah, it was it's before. Biden seems almost unchanged. Um, yeah, it felt like a whole lot of, you know, much ado about nothing, right? So, yeah. Do they think that these debates matter? They might matter for folks like you and I. Could they matter for donors? Are uh, party leaders, thought leaders, uh, money leaders pay attention to these debates? Is there a correlation between debate performance mm-hmm. and fundraising? Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I mean, that's. 
I, I don't know if there's any figures on that. I mean, part of it, too, is these different candidates are fundraising in different ways. Mm, so right. Biden mm. is flying into places purely for, like, a small elite fundraising like mm-hmm. gig, right? Um, but some candidates have um, basically eschewed doing any sort of, like, um, fundraising with big donors, and they're going right. solely for the small don- donors. And so, who's you doing that? Bernie is. Um, Bernie is. Um, Warren. Did you do trying to remember Warren. Mm. I'm not so sure if I know she. I want to say yes. She's she's relying more on so. the small yeah. donors. Now that's a change for her previously because mm-hmm. previously she had done mm-hmm. um, fundraising with big donors, and she sort of got dinged on that for being yep. hypocritical. So she now gotcha. she's moving more towards the the small donors. But but Biden, you know, is is still going for the big donors. So yeah. so I guess it depends on which sort of candidate you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Shall we continue, gents? Continue. Might as well. All right. You guys are doing great Two on the clock, in. by the way. All right. All right. So. Thank you, Mr. Clock Enforcer. On June 27th, the Supreme Court ruled against the Trump administration and blocked the inclusion of a question about citizenship on the U.S. Census. Uh, the U.S. Census uh, is slated to kick off here in 2020. Very important census. Mm-hmm. On June 30th, Donald Trump uh, salved his wounds there and visited the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. It's always fun. All right. Um, <laughs> on July 12th, labor uh, some more personnel changes. Labor Secretary Alex Acosta resigned from the Trump administration primarily because of criticism over a plea deal that he worked out when he was a prosecutor uh, with Jeffrey Epstein some decade or so ago. Jeffrey Epstein, uh, now deceased Jeffrey Epstein, um, was currently um, in, under indictment for um, multiple uh, charges of sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. On July 14th, Trump, I, don't even, I didn't even know how to write this headline up, guys. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Trump so and the squad begin their official feud. <laughs> um, Bizarrely, this has nothing to do with Taylor Swift. Um, I'm going to ring this. Um, I'm going to ring this right. in on ring this it, one. Um, guys, what are we talking about here? What is going on? Then we should start by saying, who is the squad? <laughs> oh, this is you, man. <laughs> you, know, you know what we're talking about, though, right? Uh, it rings a vague bell. I tried to ignore some of this news over the summer. I guess. Oh, Good for you, on. man. I get tired of too much. Okay, so there are, there are several um, uh, female uh, members of, con- of Congress. The House. Oh, that squad, yes. Right. Uh, what squad did you think I was talking about? <laughs> There was the like, you know the uh, women's like, national like team a K-pop band. He, or did, he did actually also have <laughs> right. A, that's what I'm saying. The women's national team. So there's so many squads. Um, so that the, the victory on there too. My goodness. Okay, the squad if you, is um, Omar. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez of, of of New York, uh, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and Rashida Tlaib right, of Michigan. Right. That squad. Yeah. <laughs> Good grief. Not um, Megan Rapino. <laughs> no, although we probably should talk about Ms. Rapino, or at least we will on the 252. That's right. Tune in tomorrow. <laughs> um, okay, these four, um, these four uh, female members of Congress were singled out by the president um, for uh, vitriol. And were, um, I don't even I don't I don't know if I wanted to even do a blow by blow of, of the mm, back and forth good. and the tweets and things, but um uh the rhetoric from the president or the rhetoric that the president tolerated at some mm-hmm. of his um uh rallies mm-hmm. um which included chants of send them back 
right um which is very disturbing um these are uh, all four of these women are u.s citizens and right. uh, Congress, several of them right. were some of them are native born u.s citizens all about three One three of the, of the four three of the four are native born yeah. u.s citizens yeah. um so the notion of sending them back carries deep racial um mm-hmm. animus mm-hmm. and and overtones um is there more to read into this? Is that does this say something about um, the climate of politics in the United States right now? Is this bespeak a larger political rift um, on issues of race and gender in American politics, or is this is this unique to the Trump administration? I mean, I think it speaks to. I mean, it's a microcosm of of what's going on in our current media climate. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. Trump and the squad need each other to exist. Yeah. You can't... It's very Hegelian of you. Oh, it is. It is. Um, but but I think... I mean, so... so and I mean, so Trump came on the scene and became, you know, a national political presence, mm-hmm. obviously before the squad were even elected for the most part. True. But right. Trump, in some ways, owes his existence to certain sorts of views and rhetoric that mm-hmm. the squad represent. And Trump represents mm. a popular backlash amongst certain Republicans and conservatives to that. Trump and his rhetoric um, is the reason why I think the squad basically um, has come to gain the traction that they do. It's hard to imagine the squad existing in the way they do now and even like with that sort of the unity that they seem to have, the rhetoric that they seem to be using. it would be. It's hard to imagine them existing if Trump was not president. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way, so so they need they they owe each other their existence in, yeah. some, in some fundamental way. I mean, like so one of the things that's been interesting to me tracking these kind of these these particular congresswomen, especially AOC, right, is the way she gets into fights with her own leadership, right? Not sort of sort of setting Trump aside for a moment, right? You have people like Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein, neither of whom I would describe as sort of a, a middle of the road moderate, right? I mean, they're both quite liberal politically, um, but she's gotten in prominent fights with them, right? Because it's that same kind of like, we're going to do it in a very particular way right now, um, and it's the only way to do it, instead of like, we're going to work incrementally to, you know, in Weber's terms, this do this long, slow boring of boards that is, mm-hmm. you know, the political work, right? Um, so it's, I think that's right. I mean, I think that those kind of extremist reactions on both sides, um, they're, they're sustaining each other, and they're allowing each other to exist where the kind of more, you know, deal makers of politics are struggling to get traction. All right, Sam is ringing us out of that one. I have more I could say, but uh, we're going to move on. Um, we've already mentioned that um, Mark Esper, oh, I'm sorry, on July 22nd, I want to get ahead of myself here, on July 22nd, there, a bipartisan deal was reached in Congress uh, to uh, kill uh, spending caps. The Democrats get more domestic spending. The Republicans get more defense spending. This is functionally the end of sequestration. Yay. <laughs> okay. Um, important budgetary matters. Um, Mark Esper was confirmed to Secretary of Defense on uh, um, 90 to 8, not a close vote, on July 23rd. On July 24th, Robert Mueller testifies before the House uh, Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. It's Mueller time. Nobody? No, I only have nothing left. <laughs> All right, you, he's saving his ding. All I'm right, my ding. Yeah, July twenty sixth, the Supreme Court rules that Donald Trump and the Trump administration can divert funds from the military uh, to use to build their the border wall. And so far, three point six billion dollars have been diverted. Yeah. June twenty seventh, the Supreme Court overturns lower court rulings that block partisan gerrymanders. 
That was a slow <laughs> boil <laughs> towards a ding. Like, All right. Mr. Gookum. Well, I mean, so there's, I mean, a number of Supreme Court cases that came down that we could talk about. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them have more immediate political implications than others. So I, I didn't um, ding the bell on the Supreme Court's decision to block the citizenship question on the 2020 census. But I think we should at least talk about one of these decisions. And so um, basically uh, the, the short version is the Supreme Court said that the courts, the federal courts specifically, don't have any jurisdiction over um, the drawing of legislative districts by the states. And if the states want to go off and do and, and draw their legislative districts in a way that benefit a certain political party, um, they may do so, and the federal government, including the federal courts, can't step in and prevent mm-hmm. that because there's no... Um, there's no statutory law and there's nothing in the Constitution um, that would provide the basis for the court to intervene. And so mm-hmm. basically the court has bowed out of that and left it up to the states um, to do as they will. Um, and since then, um, you've seen actually some cases brought bet- before state courts, mm-hmm. um, which in some states do have jurisdiction um, mm-hmm. over that matter. and. Um, this is important because we have a census that's coming up yep. um, in yep. a couple of years in which um, whenever there's a census, basically um, we count up the number of people in particular states, right. and that determines how many seats they get in the House of Representatives. And if you have shifts in the amount of seats that a member of the uh, – that a state gets in the House of Representatives, you might have to redraw the yep. legislative map. Um, And whenever you have an opportunity to redraw a map, you can redraw it in a way that benefits your political party if you happen to control the power in that state. And so um, you're seeing a lot of jockeying um, in both parties, actually, um, to try to redraw these maps in ways that are beneficial Mm -hmm. to them. There's a lot more we could say about that, but it's, it's an important case because it basically kicks it back to the states. Right. Does this mean that people who are fighting partisan gerrymandering now have 50 fights to fight instead of one of them? Mm-hmm. I mean, not quite 50, because of course in some states it doesn't really matter, right? Like, sure. You can't, can't redraw Wyoming, right? But, um, but yeah. Or Nebraska. Right, right. I mean, there's always been 50 fights, um, but now they just can't be adjudicated at the federal level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, is it possible that the if um, – if 2020 goes well for Democrats, mm-hmm. if Democrats defeat Donald Trump, and if they work do well down the board, that this will see less um, less push for uh, reform of gerrymandering because now they might be the ones who get to enjoy the benefits of gerrymandering. Or is that overstating it? I mean, I think it's the case if you look historically. Whenever a party has had control strong control of a state government. Usually it's the state legislatures that are involved, although there's changes in that now. Usually whatever party controls the the independent commission or Mm -hmm. the legislature will draw the maps in a way that is beneficial to that party. Okay, so yes. Both parties do it. And so whenever one party is wringing its hands over, this, is, this isn't fair or whatever, rest assured that they have done it at some point in that state right. before. Okay. Right. I mean, yeah, because well, yeah. one of the big reasons the Democrats are so upset about this is they lost badly in 2010, and the Republicans had control of more, a disproportionate number of these processes. Right. 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 So. Uh, and really, and, that, and I know we're probably out of time, but this gets to why and Chief Justice John Roberts, I think, was the one who wrote the majority opinion for this particular Supreme Court case, is he says that inherently 
um, these sorts of mat I mean the, the inherent to drawing these legislative district boundaries is politics. You can't mm. take the politics out of that. And so for the court to come in and pretend that it can adjudicate in a non-political way um, is just is just dishonest, right? Mm. And so ultimately, it's the state political process that's going to be involved in this. You can't take the politics out of it. So there goes the bell. <laughs> and there's the bell. <laughs> I'll be quiet. All right. On July 30th and 31st, uh, the Democrats had their second round of presidential party debates, or par- presidential nomina- nomination debates. On August 3rd and 4th, um, there were mass shootings in uh, Tex- El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. Come back to that. On August 16th, uh, Donald Trump expresses interest in purchasing Greenland from Denmark. <laughs> I, I want to ring the bell when I'm saving it. Denmark are my people. Uh, the 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 most uh, the most strained political tweet that I saw <laughs> was from our own dear senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, who wrote, um, "The people of Greenland or uh, the people of Denmark are what, what's oh what's the difference between the people of Denmark and um, Donald Trump? The uh, uh, Gre- uh, the people of Denmark are not for sale." Huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's <sighs> okay. strange. Um, on August 21st, it gets weirder. gets weirder. Um, in August 21st, Donald Trump proclaims that he is the chosen one in relation to U.S.-Israel policy. Um, that's just weird. Uh, so, that was right. such weird. On August 24th, uh, Donald Trump attends the G7 summit in France. Bless their hearts. Couldn't and invites anymore. Russia also, to rejoin. We should yep. add. Um, Iran showed up, um, which was inv- were invited by France, and apparently nobody else knew that. Awkward. Um, it's like, so does everyone get a plus one, or how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's what I was kind of wondering. I was like, does everyone get to bring you're their BFF? Another. Nope. <laughs> nope. Well, if you're the host country, I guess you can do it. I guess you can have one whatever you want. This is our special visitor. On August 29th, <laughs> Donald Trump announced the establishment of U.S. Space Command. A long-promised uh, um, uh, military establishment. On August 30th, Donald Trump tweeted what appeared to be a high-resolution image of a failed Iranian <laughs> missile launch. It appeared as though he were taking a picture of his own screen in the Situation Room. Um, phones are not supposed to be in the Situation Room, but oh, well. uh, again, deep breaths. Uh, August 31st, um, there was another mass shooting in Midland and Odessa, yep. Texas. Following this mass shooting, in conjunction with the El Paso and Dayton shootings, um, Walmart announced they would be pulling ammunition out of all of their stores. That's mine. I'm actually glad you're thinking on that because I do kind of wonder with these shootings and with some of the movement with that and NRA shifts, if we are, are we, are things changing? I mean, it always feels like we say the same things, the same people line up in the same places, and then nothing really changes. But I, I did wonder after this one, is there this an important shift between this and some of the things shaking the NRA? So I'd be interested to hear what you all think of that. A shift in public opinion specifically? Or well, I think public else? opinions, no, I don't think public opinions change so much. But I think I'm, I'm more thinking about, like, is it changing the balance of power with, like, the, the NRA's kind of significant influence on politics that might free things up to actually impose a few more regulations on gun control? I don't know. Like, I was just curious, like, with some of the stuff – the shaking the NRA, and then plus the kind of Walmart moves. Mm-hmm. 
that that suggests at least a little different kind of response than we've had in the past. I do think we're likely to see some modest reforms here for a couple of reasons. Um, the NRA remains a very potent lobbying yep. organization, but as an organization itself, it's fallen on hard times. Quite yep. literally, the organization mm -hmm. is bankrupt mm -hmm. um, because of financial mismanagement. Right. And as a consequence, it itself has less leverage to bring to bear on, mm -hmm. on, on, mm -hmm. on Congress. At the same at the same time, one of the things we often and I'll I'll, I'll look to uh, to Matt here to, to to weigh in on this, but we look at certain kinds of um, wedge issues as ways of opening up the possibilities mm -hmm. of right. of um, of reform and on on contentious issues, and people seem to be clustering around the idea of red flag laws mm -hmm. and the idea that um, people could report potentially unstable individuals and that those indiv unstable individuals uh, could, with cause, have firearms taken out of their hands before something violent happens. This is a very modest, minor reform, mm -hmm. but is one that enjoys 89% approval amongst the American population. Right. Right. And that seems like it is a real shift. Mm -hmm. Americans haven't moved nearly as much on things like assault weapons, right. mostly because we can't figure out what an assault weapon actually is. Right. Uh, and we've moved a lot less on other kinds of, of more radical uh, gun control measures. But it seems like we'll probably will get some legislation on something like red flag laws, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Now, whether or not that happens in this particular um, legislative term before the general election right. in next fall, that, that's up in the air um, because there's little appetite, at least in Congress, um, for actually getting anything done um, <laughs> because yeah. – because neither party wants to give the other party anything that it could point to as a success. Right. Um, that said, um, perhaps you could get some sort of deal on on something on some you know smaller incremental reform. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe before um, November twenty twenty. Maybe 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 afterwards. Right. I think what's going to be. What may perhaps one impediment to that there is that um, in some ways Congress is more polarized than the country on a variety mm -hmm. of issues. Mm -hmm. That is to say that members of Congress um, vote um, in a more polarized fashion than the actual general populace is. Yeah. And the reason for this in some ways is because um, the members of Congress are worried that they're going to get primaried by someone further to the left if they're a Democrat or further mm -hmm. to the right if they're mm -hmm. a Republican. They're going to get defeated in their primary by someone that is for more ideologically right. pure, and they're going to see they're they're going to worry about that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that they're going to they're going to have to overcome that hurdle. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Stay tuned. We'll see if anything comes up. Mm -hmm. On September 6th, at the age of, 19, at the age of 95, not 1995, <laughs> it seems <laughs> like close, it, close. at the age of 95, uh, former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe dies. Okay, I'll bring on that. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> international news story beyond, um, beyond, beyond our own borders here. So Robert Mugabe was such an interesting figure in African politics. Um, and I added this to the, the list because I thought we should acknowledge it. Um, Mugabe you know, fought against the, the kind of white colonial government that had um, you know, it was imposing minority rule over his country um, and was successful. And in his early years, I mean, actually showed some tendencies toward compromising with white settlers, trying to make it work Despite for some pretty aggressive rhetoric. Despite, despite some pretty aggressive rhetoric in the fight. Um, and so early on, he had actually positive, you know, there were, there were a lot of positive takes on him. And then it just went badly from there. Um, he became more and more power hungry, more and more um, sort of stealing the resources of his own country, um, doing things 
ostensibly just to sort of bring about justice, but it really just destroyed the economy, destroyed mm-hmm. any sense of, you know, how did th- things work in Zimbabwe. And he really, um, yeah, he really laid his own country very, very low. Um, and so it's, it was kind of an interesting moment as Zimbabwe's kind of reflected on his, his legacy. I mean, like, on the one hand, he's the guy who, who led them out. He's kind of their, you know, George Washington in some sense, right? I mean, he beat the, the people who had, you know, oppressed them. And yet he was also the one who kind of laid waste to their country hmm. um, for his own benefit and for his own power and, you know, tried to put his wife in power, which was the thing that actually ultimately brought him down. Those people were worried about him, you know, just sticking her in there. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of in some ways look, kind of remind people of the highs and lows of, of African politics this week um, of, as we've reflected on Mugabe and the Zimbabwe tries to figure out how do we, how do we think about this guy. Would you, Andy, would you characterize uh, Mugabe as the prototypical um, minimum minimum winning coalition type uh, autocrat? Yeah, I mean, he was definitely, the, the you know, like what sustained him in power, what ultimately brought him down was, you know, he had the armed forces, right? Yeah. He, had, he had military forces that could enforce his will, right? I mean, so you can kind of think of, you know, George Orwell's animal farm, right? I mean, how does mm-hmm. Napoleon win? Not because he's persuasive or superior ideas, right? But because he's got the dogs, right? And the dogs mm-hmm. take care of business anytime anyone tries to argue with him. And no, so no one, everyone learns you don't argue, right? And that's basically how things work with Mugabe, right? I mean, he had forces who could carry out his will. What brought him down in the end is that they abandoned him. They just decided, like, first of all, I mean, he's 93, right? And this mm-hmm. becomes a problem for all aging autocrats, right? At some point, you realize, like, this guy is going to die. And and so when do we want to, like, bail on him? This happened right. to Mubarak in Egypt. It happened now to Mugabe, right? And and I think the, the w- rumors that he might put his wife in charge instead of one of them um, became too scary, and they decided they better, you know, step in and, and take over before he, he did something they didn't want. Um, so, yeah, I think it really that really was his his big trump card at the end. Hmm. All right. I think we're out of dings, guys. We're but out of dings. We're almost to the end of the summer. Um, on September 7th, tr- Donald Trump canceled peace talks with the Taliban, which made everyone say, what? we're having peace talks with the Taliban? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that have been going on I for was like, a ah, year. Really? Yep. So, this is, so this was a badly kept secret in D.C. that the United States was actively talking to the Taliban Various reporters had been talking about these reports. They were never officially acknowledged in Washington. Right. But yes, the United States was in active talks with the Taliban, and Trump had even planned to bring representatives of the Taliban to the United States for talks here in the United States. Mm-hmm. This was going to be one of his, kind of in the same mode as his talk, as his meetings with uh, Kim Jong The little uh, rocket un, man. Kim Jong un of, of North Korea, <laughs> sort of like a photo op. Um, but the Taliban realized that Donald Trump needed a photo op with them more than they needed a photo op with Donald Trump. Wow. And <laughs> they uh, they pulled out of the talks, and he angrily canceled the talks on Twitter. Um, I'm sure the Taliban are also very active on Twitter. Um, they probably are. No, they are, in fact. Uh, <laughs> but they um, – but so that those – Although uh, here's what I'll say as the IR guy, although these peace talks have been canceled, this really doesn't lose us much. The kinds no. of conversations we're having with the Taliban are going to continue at lower levels, right. and this is we're not missing much with this. No. Um, on September 10th, which is today, breaking <laughs> news: uh, John Bolton is uh, Donald Trump's national security advisor. No more; he is departing from the administration. Um, and um, too much ignominy. Yeah. Uh, he and Trump could never get on the same page. In terms of their foreign yeah. policy, so in some ways the amazing Happy thing about John Bolton. John Bolton is that he lasted as long as he did because he was such an awkward fit for 
when you think back to how Donald Trump campaigned in 2016, yep. I mean, he was exactly the kind of Republican that Donald Trump loved to slam in slamming the Bush legacy. No, no, so. can, we, can we say really quick what we mean by that? Because Trump is, is fundamentally a nationalist populist with strong isolationist tendencies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He does not, I mean, he's, he's not one of these Republicans who desperately wants to, seems to want to get involved in wars all over the place, right? I mean, right. he wants to be, have kind of strong America, fortress America, but you kind of stay here, right? I exactly. Mean, and, and John Bolton, Bolton was like absolutely the, you know, the kind of guy who never saw a war he didn't like, right? I mean. He, he personally disagrees with being labeled a neoconservative, yeah. but he shares a lot of the views <laughs> of neoconservatives. Right. And probably is just being irascible by refusing to be labeled as such. Uh, but irascible is a maybe we should explain what neoconservatives. Yeah, neoconservatives believe basically that um, the use of American power uh, should be applied towards the spread of democracy. Right. The democracy and and, and also uh, open market capitalism right. is itself a moral good, and right. spreading those things around the world is the obligation of a powerful country like right. the United States. Right. And we should use force if necessary. So we should mm -hmm. use force to make Iraq into a Western-style democracy. Yeah. We should use force to make Iran into a Western-style right. democracy. And those are moral good things that we right. ought to do. Which fit very well with the kind of the George W. Bush way of thinking about the world, um, but m way more awkwardly with the Donald Trump way. Absolutely. And to be noted, awkwardly with a, with a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren in well, some sure. ways. Although this, although neither of them, both of them would recoil at this, uh, John Bolton would be best suited in a Joe Biden presidency in some mm -hmm. kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so Biden, Guys, Biden make, Bolton? Uh, <laughs> almost certainly not. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'll go even. Uh, John Bolton also is extremely skeptical of multilateralism, which Joe Biden is not. Yeah. Uh, John Bolton famously said that you could lose 10 floors of the UN building in New York and no one would notice. Right. Um, and uh, Joe Biden, by all accounts, is a believer in multilateralism right. and international institutions. Totally. Right. And I suppose that's one area in which uh, Bolton and Trump actually did agree is Correct. because Trump Absolutely. is yep. also is very skeptical yep. of multilateralism. Yeah. He's very much interested yep. in bilateral agreements that he yep. can yep. Um, he can you know produce through his own yep. Um, um, yep. ability to cut deals. Right. I think that you're absolutely right. That was their common ground. And where they disagree is like, what do you do beyond that? How do you use that power? Yeah, so that and the nationalism. They yeah. agreed on that, but mm -hmm. yeah, uh, what to do on the world stage is where right. they seem to disagree. Right. All right. So um, we've got one more thing before we break for the day. Um, and I'm actually going to call on Sam here. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's still here. <laughs> um, as our, as our non-political scientist, mm -hmm. um, which is always important as a reality check for us, to calling us out on things that we thought were true and just may not have been, um, <laughs> is there something that you are paying attention to in the political world uh, this upcoming fall, something that you want to uh, keep your eyes on? Well, I, you know, I, I talked with you guys today, or it was yesterday at, at lunch. Um, mm -hmm. I, we were sort of planning this, and, you know, I was trying to think of uh, the questions that I was asking you. Uh, so I'll just I'll mm -hmm. maybe just throw one of the questions I asked sure. you guys out, which is um, kind of what do you expect from a sitting president who is up for reelection in terms of uh, – is this sort of like a contract year in sports where you try to like <laughs> put your you, you try to like put your best year out there right. because this is this is the recency Swing bias right? for the fences right mm -hmm. right I mean mm -hmm. uh, or is this the kind of year when nothing gets done because nobody wants to uh, have their name on something right or enough people don't want to have their name on something that nothing gets done like like what to expect in a year where the president is both being the president and applying for the job of president right. 
Mm-hmm. I would say look for two things in that, and then in, um, the first would be uh, presidents in uh, the um, in the year preceding election oftentimes try and engage in uh, more foreign affairs, foreign policy. That's especially true in the mm-hmm. second uh, second administration if they get reelected. But I, I, um, we've already seen this summer that Donald Trump has taken several trips. To Is that because in foreign affairs allies. you don't need the cooperation of Congress? That's as exactly much? Okay. right, and that leads to my other point as well, which is I think that you be prepared to see Donald Trump undertake some executive actions uh, this this fall because he doesn't need congressional approval for executive actions. Um, I think the redistribution of money to build the border wall is one example of that. He'll be able to go into the 2020 election saying, I built the wall. Mm -hmm. I promised I would, and I did. And I did it without Congress. Yeah. Yeah, another thing to look for is that don't expect him to fundamentally try to change course and pivot towards the middle in either his rhetoric or his policies. Um, His strategy all along has been to pursue policies and use rhetoric that mm-hmm. ha- that appealed to the, you know, 41, right. 42, 44% of people who strongly support him. Right. And his his uh, his bet is that if he is able to continue pushing those policies and if he continues to pursue that same sort of rhetoric that he's going to be able to drive out his base in sufficient numbers to overcome um, any sort of advantage that um, the Democrats might have with independence. Um, that's that barely worked for him last time around in right. 2016, right. Um, and I. Th- it seems to be that he, you know, thinks that it's going to work for him again because he has not changed strategies in the past two and a half years. Um, it remains to be seen if that's actually going to work. But but given that he has not shifted so far, I would be surprised if he shifted now. Hmm. Yeah. He'd be smart to shift now. I'm not sure if he will. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think what I'm gonna, I'm looking for is just I mean a lot more of this attacking of the opponents, right? Especially as the the Democratic field narrows, uh, I think I expect Trump to to spend more time sort of taking shots at yeah. what he thinks are likely to emerge. Right. That is that is one of the things. I mean, he's he's been very effective at. I mean, like, so you know, is is so there is there something we can read into the people he chooses to go after, or not necessarily? I mean, is that a, is that a sign that either he finds them to be more of a threat, or that they're just doing better in the polls? Or I think the polls. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I would say the other way around. I so. would say that he th- he responds viscerally to who he thinks is threatening. Sure, but I think he's. But I also think he's very impressed by polls. So he's going to find he the is. people who are doing well in polls th- more. He, yeah, he keeps very close eye on polls. Yeah. So. So yeah, so I think those things I guess are for yeah. him are kind of interconnected. Okay. okay. Um, I don't think he's gonna. I mean, like unless Tulsi Gabbard starts really jumping up in the polls, I don't think he wastes a lot of time. On no, that, sure. right? Because he's gonna figure eventually she's going back to Hawaii, right? Like that's. Let's just use that as a as like a, a for instance though. Like if he were to do that, does that potentially help that candidate in terms of getting them? Attention and absolutely yeah. okay. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. okay, so is there a degree to which he could game? I mean, this is uh-huh. to which he could game. Sort of, can he juice the polls a little bit in terms of like I'm going to give attention to this person because that's actually the person I would like to, I would like to face. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I I do wonder about that. Like, if if he had some sort of strong preference between say Biden, Warren, and Sanders, who seem to be the top three right now, right? I mean, could he help one of them? Maybe by by focusing on them and by really hammering them and and actually help them with the Democratic base, hmm. it would be interesting. I, I mm-hmm. don't I don't think Donald Trump is kind of that level of strategic thinker. Um, See, that but, t- seems to me like the type maybe. of thing he might be good at is like it's how to. It seems like the kind of thing because that seems like that sure seems like right, like but, like schoolyard yeah. bully stuff. Yeah, like like yeah. that that's the way that that's yeah. the mentality for right, that. So. Right. 
Yeah. It's interesting to note that would be a shift in how presidents yeah. normally act during right. the primary season right. that the opposing of, of the opposing right. party. Typically, Absolutely. at least until um, you have um, sort of a, a narrowing yep. of the candidates, presidents are best off just ignoring the fact right. that the other party is even sure. um, has candidates right. that are running for president. Because like you pointed out, as soon as right. you call attention, um, that gives it free airtime basically to yeah. those potential candidates, yeah. Yeah. Sure. which yeah. is typically a good thing for them. Sure. Um, right. But, you know, Trump's um, particular, you know, way of operating yeah. might um, might upend that. And then is there anything we can learn from, and maybe not, because maybe, maybe 2016, the 2016 Republican nominating process was so weird because you had a figure like Trump. But it was right. similar in that it was a huge field. Huge field. Yes. Right. Is there anything we can learn from the size of that field that will help us inform this? Or is it just the field so different it's, there's nothing? The Democrats have certainly tried to learn. They've tried to be much more methodical in terms of mm-hmm. how they allocate space in these debates um, to basically to avoid right. someone demagogically occupying the debates like Donald Trump mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that we have Donald Trump in the field like they, the, mm-hmm. like the Republicans did in 2016. So I'm not sure that it's mattered much. Okay. Yeah. I, How did I do? Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Okay. Good yeah. questions. Um, Andy, what are you watching for? For the, you're talking about the Democratic No, no, no. Fall? Just anything in, anything in politics you get your eye on this coming fall. Well, I mean, I, I will talk about, the, I think, the Democratic primary, which I'm, I'm curious how it continues to narrow down. Right now we have the three people who are over 70 in the race all atop the polls, which is really interesting that Democrats are just loving the old folks right now. Um, and <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, does that continue? I mean, there's this, I was just reading about how, like, there's a lot of expectation that Biden's campaign is going to slump, right? And so a lot of campaigns are kind of watching that. And I'm, I'm curious if that happens, because right now he's got a very... He's got a very strong position in the polls. He's pretty popular within the party. Mm-hmm. Um, he's somewhat insulated against the kind of what we might call old man mistakes because he's always made those mistakes since mm-hmm. he was a young man, right? And so, you know, it's hard to tell what's like Joe Biden is 76 and Joe Biden's just Joe Biden, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I'm, I'm kind of interested um, to see how, how that plays out. And if, if, any, if any of the other kind of people who are further down get a chance to make a run, we've seen that in past you know, particular Republican races where people got this sort of like, you know, burst of popularity. We saw that early on with Pete Buttigieg, um, but will that happen with anyone else? Are we likely to see the field narrow significantly before Iowa, or have we kind of had our winnowing? We already had a winnowing. There are a few other people who might be likely suspects. I mean, like people like Michael Bennett, like, but honestly, Michael Bennett doesn't really matter at this point. De Blasio said he's out if he doesn't make the next debate. So, so de Blasio's out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he could go ahead and get out if he wants. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the thing is, like, those people are just so... Like, okay, let me, let me, refer- on the debate stage let me rephrase my question. Is there... Are we likely to see anyone who now is in the... The next debate? Yeah. Or, yeah. Are we likely to see any of those folks not there? Or I don't know I don't have, like how many tiers there are in that group, but in the top two or yeah, three tiers. Yeah, so... so it's a hard question because it, because if you look at the campaign strategies of some of these candidates, um, so like uh, Klobuchar and some of the others um, who are you know doing better than uh, than De Blasio, for example, but they're not doing that much better. They have been spending a lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire, and their bet is that um, that's going to be how they gain their momentum. If they can't achieve it in the debates, they'll achieve it by um, having a strong sort of start in the horse race. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's the Rick Iowa, Santorum plan. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what Rick Santorum did. He sort of, you know, w- wasn't polling super great. He came in and won Iowa. Um, yep. But then he faded pretty quickly after that. So, <laughs> so I, 
Yeah, so I, you might see some of the, the people in the lowest end dropping out, but I still think you'll see some of some of them that are polling yeah. only two, three, four percent. You know, stick it out through Iowa at least, mm-hmm. just because they've already spent so much time building organizations there and visiting there. Sure, yeah. I agree. I think the next big winnowing is probably after Iowa. And New okay, sure. Yeah, you'll few, see a few drops, but. Matt, what are you looking for this fall? Um, yeah, so Andy, Andy uh, sort of stole mine. Oh, but no, that's fine. Um, uh, I guess sort of related to that, and um, I'm I'm curious to see if if there will be any sort of change in sort of the rhetoric and the tone that the Democrats use in the primary. If there's mm-hmm. going to be any sort of attempt um, to pivot this fall, maybe this spring, uh, towards appeals. Um, um, that would maybe fly better in sort of uh, middle, sort of moderate America. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the answer to that is probably no. Um, the trajectory of the Democratic Party in the sort of early primary season has to be to continually move left. Even mm-hmm. Biden has moved left yeah. in both his rhetoric and the policies that he's pursuing. And th- there seems to be this almost inexorable quality to this like leftward yeah. movement. And I'm yeah. curious to see, is that going to stop? Is there an end to that? Is there going to be um, any point in which someone stands up yeah. Yeah. in the primary process, like in the debates, for example, and says, you know what, I'm going to be different. I'm going to take a different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have doubts about that, but right. I'm, I'm curious to see if anyone's going to try that tack um, before Iowa. Yeah. Steve Bullock. Back, which didn't get him into the next debate. Which didn't fly. And, and again, <laughs> so, I mean, this, this yeah. goes back to, yeah. like, who are the primary voters? Right. Um, right. The primary voters are those yeah. who have the strongest sort of partisan and ideological sentiments. Yeah. They're the ones that are, you know, in some ways driving driving the car. Um, yeah. And so there's there's risk in yeah. trying, to, um, um, trying to go after um, sort of your general uh, population as opposed to your, your partisan yep. your partisan voters. And just thinking about the top three, and I, my expectation is Warren and Sanders won't try that, is my no. guess. I think no. they're going to try to run a hardcore-based campaign. Right. I'm a lot more curious what Biden does. If Biden feels like he's set up the nomination, because I do feel like he still has that instinct to try to, like, create this kind of broad coalition. Right. Um, a little, I mean, a little, you know, now like Obama 08, right? So right. we'll see. And, and so my thought is, let's just say, you know, Biden, like, continues to have mediocre performances in the yep. debates, and he sort of begins to flame out a little bit. Um, you know, like, you yeah. know, to use a different analogy, you know, like there's some blood in the water and the sharks yeah. start circling mm-hmm. around him because yep. he's the, the guy that's doing best. Like, who is the next most, like, like where does his support go? Um, both yep. money and and potential, um, you know, voters. And, yep. like, is it to Warren? Not so sure. Um, is it to Sanders? Probably not. Harris, though, that's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's, I think she's the most ne- next likely sort of spot for these more sort of moderate yeah. people to go. She's not a moderate. Nope. She's definitely a progressive, but she's going to have more pull with them than, let's say, um, a Warren or Sanders, or Sanders is for sure, um, and so so I would. Yeah. So I'm curious to see if Harris would end up picking up um, some of his support, and if it looks like Biden's flaming out, Harris does pick up some of his support. Will that will that encourage her to take a more moderate stance, mm-hmm. um, at least mm-hmm. in her rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Chris, what are you looking for? I'm going to go off the map, or at least off of the continent. Into um, space. Into s- space command. Uh, no, I'm, as, as uh, we think American politics are messed up and confused and, and roiled oh. right now, yeah. the uh, the British say, who'd oh my point? My word. Um, I'm watching Brexit. Oh, my word. Brexit yes. is a hot mess. Oh, it's gone so from hot, bad so to worse. Uh, Boris Johnson 
oh, is my the word. prime minister and oh, my can't word. even get his own party in line. Oh, it is. It's a treat. He's kicking people out of the party. <laughs> he has a one-seat majority, and he's kicking people out of the party. It oh, is. It is a farce, yeah. and it looks like it's going to be a hard Brexit. And it looks uh-huh. like it's going to. They're going to crash out, uh-huh. and they may take the global economy with them. Uh-huh. We may enter into a recession as a consequence of Brexit, which have, which has huge implications for Trump's reelection. It absolutely does. So, when when so. would when would that be? Uh, probably by the end of October. Okay. October thirty first is the date. Okay, yep. that's what I was curious. How, but, how, but that date <laughs> could get could get manipulated. Uh, he has said he would sooner die in a ditch than ask for an extension, but he might actually ask for an he extension. Might want to die he might ditch. be forced to. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. So you're going to dress as Boris Johnson for Halloween this year, right? Oh, I want to please, see. Please oh, make that happen. That is a fantastic I mean, it's just perfect, idea. Right? We'll discuss right. that off air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to go as a chicken, but now I think Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I get, we got to go. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you've been listening to the reboot of Election Shock Therapy. You can always email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Um, subscribe to the channel. And on behalf of my colleagues here, allow me to say one more time go Royals. Oh.